0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with P. Carl, author of Becoming a Man.
1: The hardest thing was that I risked my marriage, and in some ways, I risked my marriage without knowing it. Like I I sort of stupidly and naively did not understand the impact it would have on uh, my wife, Lynette. Uh, In hindsight, it seems so obvious, but in going through it, it did not.
0: We'll be back with Carl in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in first draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you're in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is the writer P. Carl, known as Carl, an author of Becoming a Man. Carl is a distinguished artist in residence at Emerson College in Boston. He is a writer, playwright, and dramaturg. Carl is an accomplished theater artist and producer. His memoir, Becoming a Man, focuses on the emotional and cerebral journey Carl undertook in transitioning into the man he always knew himself to be. Born as a woman and living as a lesbian in a happy marriage, eventually Carl had to transition to the person he always felt he was on the inside. Becoming a Man blends Carl's journey with cultural commentary about gender, power, and masculinity in America. We began the discussion with Carl sharing about who he felt he was growing up and what his early life was like.
1: Growing up in uh, Elkhart, uh, and uh, I grew up in... Uh, primarily an Italian family. My mom's a first-generation Italian, and so the uh, and that had the strongest influence. So I grew up with a lot of uh, cousins and aunts and uncles, and the from the very earliest memories, as I write in the book, I really always felt like the third brother and everything that my brothers were interested in, uh, probably particularly my younger brother because he was very athletic and uh, uh, we, we played sports nonstop. We uh, did pretty much everything that was um, what boys do together. Uh, and then there was sort of that life. And then there was the segregation of me uh, with all of my multiple cousins uh, being uh, always with the girls. And then the boys always going off with the boys. And uh, in those moments, uh, feeling like I had no idea what I was supposed to do. Uh, they, um, My uh, girl cousins like to lay in the sun, for example. And I, I never could think of anything more boring than that. Uh, and so kind of a constant battle of trying to fit in uh, in the world where I was expected to be. And then always looking for an opportunity to escape uh, to the person that I um, uh, wanted to be, and the the other thing I'd say about growing up in Elkhart, particularly in a family that uh, had very few economic resources, so we weren't. Uh, We weren't flying to New York to see a show or uh, seeing an exhibit in Chicago or... So my uh, survival, I always talk about the public library as the way I survived uh, Elkhart. And I I read every single possible thing I could possibly get my hands on uh, at the Elkhart Public Library and really spent a lot of my time alone. Either I was playing sports or uh, alone reading and imagining myself as other people in other worlds.
0: Yeah, I think what's, you know, another interesting aspect about your family that is also probably difficult is that your home life wasn't fantastic. Your dad kept to himself, he drank, your mom, there was some, you know, level of abuse going on in within your family towards you and towards your mom. Your parents didn't really get along. So you you weren't like in this stable household where you always knew what you would find coming home, but then you had all this stuff going on inside of you.
1: It's so complicated. And certainly as you unpack it, when you're older, you really do have to begin to distinguish what were the things that were traumatic about your childhood that were also traumatic for my brothers. Uh, It's been interesting, in fact, for my brothers to read the book. And I think it's been a very emotional experience for both of them and uh, for for them to be able to say, you know, these things are all true, but I've always just accepted them as the way things were. And reading about them, I I don't know how we survived them. And so it's almost like... uh, you know, you you when you live in those kind of circumstances, you find the the survival techniques. And I think for me, what that meant primarily was being uh, pretty much of a loner. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, up in trees by myself, riding my bike by myself. Uh, and then my kind of social life, if there was any, was a to play, um, I played sports, and that's how I usually connected outside of um, alone time. Uh, so uh, pretty isolated. I like to, I mean, I went through college, I went through graduate school. The people that I was connected to through all of those experiences, like I have one friend still from college. Uh, most people have 10 friends from college, or uh, it's just a, it's a pretty isolated uh, way of living, uh, both as a trans person, Uh, and as a person who is trans without uh, other supports and other visions of how they might live. Uh, So it was pretty interior and pretty focused on uh, culture, you know, movies, uh, books, uh, art, uh, uh, just other forms of thinking about uh, the world.
0: One of the things that I, that strikes me and I think about so much with just so much empathy is like, I think to grow up, feeling like you're trapped in the wrong body would be absolute torture every day. But I also think that perhaps people don't, they can't quite put their finger on it. So they might grow up feeling tortured, but it takes them a while to realize why, like they, they realize maybe they're not fitting in, but something isn't right, but they don't hone in on it right away. And I'm just wondering your reaction to that, if, if that was true for you, or if you were more of the mindset, like, I know that I was born to the wrong gender.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think, especially of my generation, right? So I think you know, if I were born now, it might be different. But certainly there was nobody talking about trans. As I say in the book, I in by high school in Elkhart, Indiana, I didn't know Anybody who was gay or lesbian, and all I mean by that is I'm sure there were many people I didn't know even hardly what that was, right? So, uh, let alone uh, trans. Um, and uh, I say I, I didn't knowingly know those folks. And the um so I think the uh, one of the things that you do in those circumstances is know, like in some ways, you have early knowing. And then you have like, there was a moment in my 20s where when I came out as a lesbian, uh, there were some people just beginning to transition uh, from uh, uh, female to male. And I saw that uh, and was drawn to it very briefly and then also saw that it was just a tortured uh, experience for the few people that I knew who who were trying to manage it. And it looked, I just felt like, oh, I would never survive uh, what it, this is costing them because what, what really they lost sort of all of their community in those transitions and all of their sense of their, their jobs, their place in the world. And so I think you're right. I mean, most of the time, you know, something is wrong. And the way I like to describe it is I never under, I mean, I knew this, but what I never, ever entered any public space where I felt at ease. and the 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 distinct difference of living as me is I walk into spaces and I feel at ease. And the, you can't really explain what that's like to someone, to have never gone into a room and felt like you were present as as body and head. Um, and so uh, the that that disease, I think, by the time I hit, um, you know, 49 or so, even a little earlier when I when I did top surgery originally, the uh, I I really began to know that no matter what I tried to do with my body, I could not feel at ease until my body felt at ease.
0: Yeah, I mean, you describe that in many different ways in your book about just kind of like not feeling at home, not feeling comfortable in your body, and you know, how that manifested throughout a lot of your childhood and young adulthood was you ended up in psych wards. You you ended up wanting to commit suicide and trying. You ended up so depressed and you, you chronicle some of those instances, but I, I still got the feeling that sometimes when that happened, you didn't exactly know why. And I'm wondering since you are transitioned and you are embodied in, in this identity now, if you've, if those experiences have kind of gone away, those, that desire to commit suicide, that feeling of, of the ground falling from underneath you.
1: Yeah. I I think what's been interesting. I, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book about the ground falling underneath me is that so much of it was about being treated like a woman in a misogynistic culture. Uh, and and I, I was weirdly in this kind of double life of being, uh, I have I, I, led a double life in many ways uh, in different times, and that double life was being a fairly successful professional in the world of the theater, and then also feeling like I was crazy and ending up in the psych ward. And those two lives lived um, side by side. And uh, the the part of the feeling crazy was, uh, just the, uh, you know, that we now call it gaslighting, but the way I was treated as a, as a woman was so unbelievable to me. And I really didn't even know, I never felt like a woman, so I didn't know why these things were happening that had no logic. Uh, and so part of feeling crazy was the way in which Uh, We we now feel crazy that there is, you know, a president who can say the things he says about women and still be the president. And, and, And we're all sort of going crazy as a country. And I felt that kind of in a more micro way in maneuvering the world as a person who felt like a man and was being treated like a woman. So I think that that was, you know, that along with the the lack of ease, certainly along with, you know, family situations. As I've uh, come into my uh, sense of feeling embodied, what happens, uh, or I should say, what has happened for me is that I now can separate things from other things. uh, So everything doesn't feel the same. And what I sort of learned in that, in this time, is that uh, I, I suffer from some depression that I think has been real and probably separate from transitioning and that I uh, so that hasn't that hasn't gone away but it's uh, treatable because I know what it is and I know it's separate from what feeling embodied is and so it's a it's a I've been able to become uh, a much more uh, you know sort of holistic person in the world able to um, deal with each thing as it is versus uh, all things being conflated as you know, I'm crazy, or something's wrong with me, or nothing can be done, or uh, and so I think it's that sort of how it's played out, uh, and that is uh, completely manageable. And uh, you know, one of the things that's been really fun about having the book out—it's just been out a couple of weeks now—but uh, I've done, you know, I've done lots of interviews in my professional theater life. I've traveled a lot. I've done keynote talks. I've never ever enjoyed any of that. It's always been just. You know, get it done. Get home to a place that's safe, where I feel comfortable. And this, uh, as I have been telling my uh, my agent and my therapist and others, I'm, I'm having such a good time. It's really fun to be embodied and present tense and feel uh, rooted in the world. And uh, and I think I missed out on a lot of just having fun. So uh, my uh, you know sort of forward. My forward motion is all about joy and fun uh, because I missed a lot of that.
0: I think you had mentioned in your 20s, you were starting to put your finger closer to what was really going on for you. And you were seeing other people start to come out as trans and and do that transition. But you also mentioned sort of watching them lose lose their community and their friends and the bravery that it takes to just move forward with what you know it's right when it isn't as accepted by society as just being in the gender that you're born. I mean, I think on some level it isn't a choice because that's what you have to do to save yourself and be the real you. Mm -hmm. And we only get one chance on earth and you have to live it. Was there kind of a long reckoning for you to come to the terms? Like, even if I lose all these other things, this is who I am in the world and it's the only thing that will save me.
1: Yeah. I I mean, again, you know, I think it's a great question because the the I, I again it's in in one way transitioning is not a choice uh, I mean in most ways it's not a choice in in I guess in some very technical way one does have to decide to put the testosterone in their body and you know those kinds of things and and that's a very hard. Uh, you you can know something, but then also to say, well, what is this going to cost me? And by the time I did it, as I write in the book, uh, I had this incredible um, uh, primary care physician who, uh, Fenway Health in Boston is like one of the premier places for trans people to get healthcare. And she said to me, uh, be prepared to lose everything. And I actually could not imagine what she was talking about. I had a very solid career and a very solid relationship. Uh, I mean, I just, what was I going to lose? I could only imagine, uh, what I was going to gain. And of course she was completely right. Uh, the, my marriage survived by, you know, uh, the smallest of margins imaginable. And, uh, I'm, you know, have lots of good things to say about that, but it was, it was close. Uh, and then I lost numerous friends. Uh, I mean, everything really, I, I really, she was exactly right. And so to, to go through that, and even as it was happening, I, there was no sense ever that I would stop. And I talk about in the book, the hardest thing was that I risked my marriage. And in some ways I risked my marriage without knowing it. Like I, I sort of stupidly and naively did not understand the impact it would have on uh, my wife, Lynette. Uh, it, in hindsight, it seems so obvious, but in going through it, it did not and in in the book you know i write about it was the first time in my life that i chose me and i had never chosen me before and i think uh, you, you probably know as, a, as an artist a writer that that we're all trying to fill a hole inside of ourselves none of us uh, get out of life without feeling something is missing and i think that um the what, what i have learned in choosing me is only I, no amount of success, no amount of love from other people, only I can feel that. And to do that, I had to have a body. And, um, and I think that I had to risk everything in order to have a shot at feeling what it would be like to really enjoy life without being focused on what, what I was missing, the whole, the grief, the, the, the lack that sort of we enter the world with.
0: I can't imagine all of the issues you had to navigate in your marriage. And obviously you didn't really either because you just, it's kind of like you had your eye on the prize at some point where it was like this, I have to become this, or I will wither and not be here. So everything else was predicated on you being able to do that. But as you said, like the other ramifications, you know, even as simple as your wife saying to you, like, now I have a man in my bed instead of a woman and so you write a lot about navigating that
1: yeah I mean the the of course the 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 iron ear I don't know if that's the right word but the the, the, the here I have this uh, PhD in essentially versions of feminist and queer theory and uh, I have I have thought about these things my entire life and I start to go through this transition and it it is a little bit slow at first and my wife and I agree to top surgery and that seems not to cause too much disruption in the relationship and then it's pronoun change and name change and that there starts to be some tension and then at the moment I say I'm going to start to take testosterone uh, she looks at me and says you're a man like like it had never occurred to her and I'm like but what do you think I've been doing it it just the the lack of uh my understanding of the difference between you know being butch being masculine and actually saying I'm a man not a woman and saying that to a lesbian of 40 years uh you know as i talk about it now of course that that co- completely threw everything she knew about herself into disarray and as i was transitioning i could not understand and feel what she was going through and feeling and uh all i could feel was all of the ways in which i nobody seemed to be not nobody but so many people were rejecting this uh transition as some kind of betrayal uh my my wife included in that and i think the um the the you know obviously thinking about it now i i'm just so amazed by her and her uh courage and willingness to explore what this meant for her over a couple of years and for us together to have you know decided uh, that there was something between us that actually uh transcended gender and uh you know i suppose that's some nebulous thing called love and uh and that we were able to find that uh with a man in our bed that neither of us really ever expected uh, is, um, I think, rare and uh, speaks you know, not to uh, simply my, uh, you know, willingness, whatever, to go through the things I went through to become me. But what she went through uh, to uh, feel her own sense of embodiment uh, and then uh, to take the risk of uh, loving uh, somebody who she hadn't anticipated uh, Coming her way, I guess,
0: one of the parts about your book that I found fascinating and and very joyful was you really feel a lot of joy in your masculinity. It's like it was palpable. It, it just even in the way you explained a certain sort of rage that you had before or a certain sort of um, body that felt nothing to one that feels everything that, you know, doing your hair or going swimming or you know, rubbing your hands over, Your body in a certain way, like that you really feel this pride also in, in being masculine. And so I could see how that's also, you know, so alienating at the same time, because you, you've been striving for this thing.
1: Yeah. And and as I say, you know, right at the opening of the book, I mean, uh, my timing was not great. Like, uh, you know, uh, Trump uh, hashtag me too. uh, You you know, you you get implicated in uh, the worst uh, versions of masculinity uh, as you are just, uh, you know, reveling in it. And and one of the challenges I know I hear uh, as I talk about the book is. That I revel in, you know, masculinity, of course, as it's always weird to talk about femininity and masculinity because they're so complex. But for me, I revel in some, I guess, some of the more masculine, ver- you know, my wife calls me a guy's guy. And in, in many ways, I've always been a guy's guy It just looked different in a different body. Uh, and, um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, because I like hanging out with the guys in the locker room, or I like sitting at the bar and having a bourbon, uh, you know, I've heard, well, why do you choose the most toxic forms of masculinity to express yourself, and i I think it's interesting that those and I'll say, well, you know, are they inherently toxic? Uh, uh, the idea of um you know certain forms of masculinity uh, just being bad in and of themselves, and of course, as a man in the world, that's how a lot of guys live, and some of them are great guys, and some of them aren't and um and so it's really uh, complicated. Uh, uh, because white masculinity has earned its terrible reputation uh, and uh, and so how do we uh, as a culture contend with that uh, in a in a way that um, uh, does not you know put every uh all of us pitted against one another uh, and I think that's the book is a is an attempt to Uh, create just more nuanced dialogue about identity and the way we express ourselves and um, how much room can we make for each other.
0: Sitting around and talking about basketball and having a bourbon is way less toxic than running for Senate.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. And way less toxic than being um, Susan Collins uh, saying Christine Blasey Ford it wasn't, you know, it could have been somebody, but it wasn't Kavanaugh. I will mean, I'll, I'll take my bourbon and basketball any day. <laughs> so, you know, misogyny lives in lots of bodies, and, um, uh, and exactly right. Uh, and and one of the things that's great about, um, uh, being living in my body is just. All the stories I hear, and um, you know, I am. I feel sometimes like an anthropologist of masculinity, as I just mostly am an observer. I, lo- I love just observing how it expresses itself in all of its complexity. And I meet a lot, you know, I'm teaching a course here at Princeton on fellowship, and uh, about it's called uh, Ruled by Conviction. Uh, confronting narratives of white masculinity. Uh, No surprise, it's uh, uh, everybody in the course is a woman or a a trans man. Uh, No uh, cis white men uh, took the course. But um, uh, one of the things that, you know, we've really uh, talked about is the way, and these are all, you know, people who are, you know, thinking about gender and so forth, and the way that uh, very... um, uh liberal guys all double as very feminist very open-minded and then i know as a man three minutes later i hear them in the locker room saying things that they would never say in front of the woman they just declared their feminism to you know and so those double lives are real and um we have to uh for me i think we have to talk about the whole all of it and performing Uh, the hypocrisy is more offensive to me, really, sometimes than just the overt, you know, the the overt uh, misogyny that you can sort of take on (laughs) head to head.
0: You had a swim coach when you were growing up, you did not like swimming. And as you were transitioning, you were also, you know, really exercising and building up your muscles and doing things physically that probably helped in the transition make you feel like more muscular, more 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 masculine. And you had a swim coach and you loved going to swimming and your swim coach was gay, but you never told him, at least in the span of the book, about your own transition. And I'm curious about that about the the deeper question about like, does it really matter? I mean, as you move through your life and this is less new, so when you're 60 or 70, is that important to tell people? Is that part of your identity or is it sort of like, well, this is no one's business, this is who I am? I think it's really interesting because obviously it's, it's every individual's choice to just say I'm a man or I've transitioned to becoming a man and I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Uh, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a great question, because I think one of the things I, I think is so important about what I was trying to write in the book is that there are, mu- we live multiple truths, right? So sometimes we live in one version of truth, and sometimes we live in another version of truth. Sometimes my truth is just I'm a guy, I'm out, I'm doing my thing, I just want to be that guy, I don't want to represent anything, I just want to do my thing. Uh, and, uh, and other times, it, you know, it, it seems very important For me to own uh, my uh, the complexity of my trans identity, because that is the only way that there will be space for other people uh, to have, uh, as I call in the book, livable lives, and so the swim coach was a really interesting one because uh, a friend of mine confronted me and said, well, you know, he's come out to you as gay and you haven't come out as trans. And I had to really think, are those the same thing? Uh, And, uh, and so I of course have a long chapter where I, I contemplate that. And I think the, I I really feel like uh, that it was so important for me and still is like, I want to be able to just go into the locker room and not be uh, representing something. I just want to work out. Uh, I wanted to learn to feel my body in the water, uh, and that you know, not not to be a political activist in that moment. Uh, and the um, uh, so I and, and that's a, it's very conflicted because when you're not representing, you feel like maybe you're closing something off for somebody who is also trying to transition and yet at the same time you're trying to feel your body in the world for the first time and so that conflict is not really reconcilable it's just how you manage it and i feel like uh partly putting the book out there uh uh, makes my anonymity um less (laughs) less available to me so i i find that uh both good and stressful uh and in terms of um the swim coach we're really interested interesting that uh, uh, we we had this whole relationship uh, and you know i did finally uh uh say you know uh he, he ended up moving and i ended up going to berlin and i said you know i just want to let you know i'm a trans guy and, and i'm telling you this mostly because you have helped me to know my body in a way that you will never understand what you've done for me you've done you've given me this gift and i wanted you to know that you gave it to me and he said to me, and he was funny, he said, you know, I've been training people for a while. I sort of know bodies, you know, like he wasn't, you know, he didn't seem too surprised. He said, I'm not, I just see you as the guy you are. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm your swim coach and I'm here for that. And he's ended up becoming a, a great uh, friend and uh, someone I really, really love. But uh, I, it was good to go on that journey of just being me, feeling like me, and then also being able to, um uh, you know, uh, take the risk of, of of telling him and letting that happen as well. You know, so I feel, I, I, I use that word becoming in the book, becoming a man. Uh, some people argue, well, you, you didn't become, you always were one, but it, it really is about becoming, you know, becoming embodied and figuring out uh, how you're going to express that becoming in different contexts.
0: One of the things that I also loved about the book, like a really kind of bizarre serendipity that might not happen very often for people in your position, is that your best lesbian friend is also now a trans man.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my buddy Lee is like, I mean, that is the great. We started graduate school uh, in 1991 on the same day. We came out as lesbians to each other on the same day. As I say in the book, his um uh, his first uh, girlfriend's name was my name, so <laughs> it was just bizarre. And uh, he transitioned uh, 11 years before I did. And uh, it was, you know, incredibly easy, artistic uh, uh, by him. I, I love him, and you know th- that was was simple. I I I do remember feeling so incredibly jealous at the time, um, and also uh, completely uh, just you know there and supporting him, and um, and he has been uh, a real what was so great about uh, having him in my life was he understood that it was a process that was out of my control in a way. So if I said one day, Oh, I'm not going to take testosterone. And the next day I said, I am, or if I said one day, I'm not going to change. You know, he was just, he just rolled with, he knew to roll with the, the way that a transition happens, which is just messy. And, and, and it was, it it was a real lifesaver, um, to uh, to have him uh, as a, as a you know guide uh, in the process uh, and then just just yeah you know basically saying yes to whatever uh, it was that I needed at any given time um, and and we have uh, we took this wonderful trip as two men together after having taken many trips as uh, two women together and then as a trans man and a woman and you know so it's it's a it's a it's a pretty
0: fascinating
1: story in that way.
0: So I have a question that I feel is maybe a question that is verboten or maybe it goes into the insensitive category, but I'm just curious, like if you get that a lot is that I think that. We have, like, in our society, we have this comfortable space where we talk about transitioning, we talk about people's feelings, but when it really comes to the physical, like, what did you do to your body and how does this work? I think people stay away from it. And is there a line there that you feel shouldn't be crossed?
1: Uh. I, I I think. Uh, do you mean in terms of like asking the questions about well, what's that? What the, the, those kind of questions or uh, or, or yes or yes that, that, yes. I yeah. think
0: okay, you yeah. know you say that you have top surgery for in, instance, and people can envision mm-hmm. that. But I think the the bottom surgery is much more confusing for people and how that all works. But I don't think people would either ask that because it just feels like it crosses a line, or it does cross a line, or it's just rude.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's. I, I think people get very body curious and obsessed. And one of the things I say in the book is it, it, the, one of the reasons I, uh, you know, often don't <laughs> want to be trans in in a, in a social setting. Just you know, uh, in the in the minute is that the minute people find out you're trans, they um you see them. You literally watch them look you up and down, and they try to find. What they missed, you know, uh, and, and I hear people say often, uh, people, you know, who uh, all well intentioned say, God, they did it, it, they, you know, they did a good job or it went well for you or I would have never known, or, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's like, that well, it was, kind of, it was kind of the point. Uh, and, um, but I think in terms of those questions, i think uh some of them really require having intimate relationships uh in terms of like the real specificity i think the more general questions about uh you know the more general questions about learning about how to talk about trans like i i've had questions on the tour about you know, what do I say to somebody when they're transitioning, for example? Uh, Though, and that is difficult to know, right? Are you supposed to notice? Are you not supposed to notice? Uh, and, you know, one of the things I, I always say is like, you know what you're supposed to do if you, it, like anytime you know somebody's transitioning in any direction, like, I mean, if somebody had cancer and you saw them after chemo and, you know, honestly, they didn't look so good, you wouldn't even say that. You'd say, you know what, you look great. You look like you're really hanging in there. It, it, most people uh, just want to uh, you know hear the most generous thing and so I said you know if you know somebody's transitioning and you know no matter where they are in their transition if they are in a position of moving toward themselves to feeling embodied and like themselves then you, it's really easy to know what to say say you look great how are you you know um, and they can tell you what they want to tell you about that uh, and so I think uh, in terms of those more like you know, very specific, what kinds of surgery, that kind of stuff. I feel like that's probably, um, you know, different people have to make different choices about that, but those are probably conversations uh, that uh, uh, there has to be some kind of level of trust uh, to have them. Um, And, uh, um, you know, I wouldn't recommend starting there. (laughs) 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 This is my my recommendation to people who are trying to know how to have conversations (laughs) with trans people.
0: You talk a lot in your book about the challenges with your marriage, you know, how, how are you doing now with your wife? And do you feel like, I mean, whatever, relationships are a journey and they're really, really hard every day. Just even if you never left your house, they're hard. (laughs) So do you feel like you though have crossed a, a line where you feel more confident that you can move forward without some of the challenges that you had during the transition?
1: I mean yes, and and uh, uh, you know one one of one of my uh, (laughs) huge learning curves was that uh, the the naivete that the longer you've been together, the easier a relationship gets, and of course that is probably the dumbest thing I've ever thought. Of course, it just they just get harder and harder. Usually, it's why people divorce at 20 years, and so in some ways we um, we faced uh, the hardship of having been together so long, having all this history to contend with, and then this you know, uh, this uh, transition on top of it, which uh, how one survives that uh, is, is, I still don't know quite how we did it, but um, I think I, 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 I am loath to speak for us both, but I think it's the, the happiest we've ever been uh, together in part because uh, I am in the relationship as me. And I think part of, you know, what my wife had to do is figure out who she was and uh, in like, and could she, you know, <laughs> could could she be in love with uh, this, this guy? And uh, we, uh, you know, took, you know, a good solid couple of years uh, for us both to decide how we were gonna be embodied in the relationship. But that work, uh, I, I think it's now the closest we've ever been, um, so. I think if you survive it, uh, you know, uh, you've come, you've had to contend with a lot. (laughs) There's not a lot of baggage left between us. (laughs) It's all been, it's all out on the table at this point.
0: I'm wondering if you can read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer.
1: Yes. Uh, so I, um, uh, you know, when you ask a writer that question, of course, uh, you know, I have 50,000 things, but I picked one for you. Uh, and, uh, the, um, and this is from uh, a book that more recently influenced me uh, during the transition uh, called Go Went Gone uh, by Jenny Erpenbeck. Uh, and uh, it's about a professor, a white guy professor emeritus who tries to get to really uh, know um, uh, some um, uh, uh, African refugees in Berlin, uh, who um, he's trying to help find housing. Uh, So I'll just read a a little uh, uh, piece from it. Uh, Richard spends the next two weeks reading several books on the subject of the refugees and drawing up a catalog of questions for the conversations he wants to have with them. After breakfast, he goes to work he has lunch, naps for an hour, then he sits down at his his desk again, or reads until eight or 9 p.m. It's important he asks the right questions. And the right questions aren't always the ones you put into words. To investigate how one makes the transition from a full, readily comprehensible existence to the life of a refugee, which is open in all directions, drafty as it were, he has to know what was at the beginning, what was in the middle, and what is now. At the border between a person's life and the other life lived by that same person, the transition has to be visible. A transition that, if you look closely enough, is nothing
0: at all. Do you want to say anything more about why you chose it? I mean, I chose it
1: because this idea of um questions uh he then you know goes on to ask uh, to list all of the questions you could ask you know where do you grow up what's your native language what's your re- re- religious affiliation where do you want to be buried that um the 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 book to me and that passage is the this this t- time in the world where we uh, uh are so separated around that only we can know, we can only know our own identity and our own selves. And the book is this exploration, which is both a failure and a success of the impossibility of fully knowing what it is to be in somebody else's reality and body, but that the effort of trying to know is what what keeps us going and makes us connected, even if we can never fully understand. And that to me is what I feel like uh, is the most important part of how I'm trying to think about uh, my life moving forward in connection to others.
0: Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the hardest part of the book was really about trying to figure out how to love masculinity and hate masculinity all at the same time. Um, and, uh, uh so I, it, this is just a little paragraph, but uh, it was one that I, I played around with a lot um, uh, because I, you know, I knew this was going to be one of the, the real questions in the book, and it's, the, it's what ends the first, uh, the kind of introductory chapter to the book. Uh, I see all the flaws of men, all the ways their fragility makes them dangerous and powerful and dismissive and sure that they know it all, and I love being a man. I love masculinity and I love hanging out with men. My body is a contradiction. I feel a fiery rage toward men for treating me like a woman, for making women seem crazy and emotional and inferior for what men did to me. I feel so much joy living in a man's body, my natural physicality, and I'm trying to find a path toward becoming a good man. If we are to survive America's current war, over who gets to have a livable life, we must confront and understand masculinity and we must all seek some version of double consciousness to be inside and outside of identities that are not our own. Transgender people have something important to offer this conversation. And perhaps if we are allowed to speak, if we're heard, we too will have a chance at more livable lives.
0: Do you want to say anything more about that? I mean,
1: you know, the book is very much focused on uh, the way in which a trans person has this kind of double consciousness, uh, especially a person uh, who transitions as late as I do. You really, you know, seeing the world from these two sides and um, this uh, uh, idea that that we can live in contradiction and that the two sides cannot always quite sync up um is um really about uh the accepting that those contradictions in all of our bodies like i never thought of this memoir as just a trans not just but as a trans memoir i really thought of it as a memoir about the relationship between bodies and minds and how bodies connect and interact with other bodies and i think that um uh, part of what we're contending with now is how are we going to understand in this context masculinity and um, really the bodies that are um, in, in uh, you know, in full progress of trying to destroy democracy? Uh, we're we're going to have to make some sense of that uh, in order to figure out um, how as a, as a country we move forward, but also as people, how do we live in contradiction and also move forward?
0: Where do you write?
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I really, uh, honestly, I really write everywhere. Uh, I write on my couch with my two dogs, uh, usually from about uh, 6 a.m. to, uh, you know, 10 or 11 a.m. That's my most consistent, but I write notes on my iPhone. I write on the plane. Uh, I write um, when I'm walking down the street and have an idea. Uh, uh, and so uh, I just I'm constantly thinking about uh, the next sentence. Um, but my most consistent is uh, a dog on each side uh, in the early morning before anybody starts to email me.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Yeah, I swim um, and uh, I swim. Uh, I try to swim most days uh, because you cannot. Um, uh you cannot take your, uh, phone in the pool. Um, and, uh, I feel like, uh, it's, uh, it's just therapy to be underwater and to feel my body move through the water is, uh, soothing.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: That is my wife. Uh, she is an incredible writer and she is, um, uh, the, uh, best, uh, editor, uh, you can imagine. And, um, uh, recently, I was looking for the end of uh, uh, a little essay I was writing, and I was like, uh, it was midnight, and I had come up with it, and I woke her up to say, this is it, this is it. And in her sleep, she said, no, it's not, and then told me why it wasn't, and then rolled back to sleep. Uh, so uh, she looks at everything first, and she's always right. Uh, and um, uh, so she's she's number one.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Uh you know, as a person who's felt uh, uh, that level of rejection just in the inside their body their whole life, I think for me the way I deal with it is I have a number of things uh, that I'm working on at one time, and honestly, when rejection comes, you know, I I I think about it. And then I just keep going uh, on the next thing. And I always make sure I have something that I'm working on that I'm engaged in, uh, in order to just I mean, just to keep keep moving. And uh, usually I close the email and uh, open the thing that I'm working on.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Currently, my favorite word is uh, nuance.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and sharing with me.
1: Uh, Thank you. I really, uh, great conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was P. Carl, author of Becoming a Man. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Shulam Dean, author of All Who Go, Do Not Return, a memoir about growing up and leaving the Hasidic Jewish world. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Some clips from this interview that patrons will receive as extras include an additional 13 minutes from Carl sharing his ideas of binary gender and fluid gender, and the ramifications he didn't expect from his transition, including the loss of friends. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Chuck Palahniuk, Anne Enright, Deb Olin-Unferth, and Anna Solomon. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer Mitzi Rabkin. Thank you for listening.